Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue in our series of Christ and His Mission, a study of Luke. The name of the sermon is Christ is Lord, Worth Trusting. And Pastor David preaches from Luke 5, 12 through 6 and 11. Let's join Pastor David now. Amen. Well, um, it's good to see you all, all of us here in one place at one time. Uh, And today, one special thing that we have to do is to welcome uh, Eric Lundin, Pastor Eric Lundin and his family uh, to our family, uh, to our fellowship. And as they come forward, let's welcome them. Several uh, days ago, I called Eric up while he was white-knuckling a U-Haul on the way from Texas to Gurney, and it wasn't uh, many days later that Bethany and the kids joined them, and just for getting to this moment, we salute you guys. (laughs) They have moved across the country, uh, and in many ways, this moment here, as we officially welcome them in, is representative and and, and signals God's faithfulness and guidance in their life and in our life as a church community. So we want to welcome them here. And to do that, uh, just uh, one more time, Eric, maybe some uh, weren't able to get to the guy. No, you guys during the candidating week. Introduce one more time yourself and your family. And then as they're doing that, uh, any and all elders who are uh, present with us today, I ask you to come forward. After they introduce themselves, we're going to pray for them and surround them and lay hands on them and pray. Good morning. Oh, wow, I'm loud. Uh, Good morning. Uh, We're really glad to be here. My name is Eric. Like David said, this is my family. Uh, This is Bethany, my wife, and our little ones who keep us very busy. This is Will. Will, can you wave, bud? No. (laughs) Uh, Will's three, and this is Elsie here, and she's one and a half. So we're super excited to be here with you all and to join in the work that God's doing. Absolutely. And I'm going to, Jason, if you could pray uh, for Eric. And gentlemen, let's surround this family and lay hands on them. And before we pray, as we've uh, set out as the church community to ask ourselves what's important that we do, as we look at Scripture, we see making disciples at the heart of the call that God has laid on our life. And a part of why we wanted to extend the call and hire Eric is that he might help put us deeper so, put that oar in the water. So as we go about this work of making disciples, We ask that you continue to pray for us, pray for each other, pray for Eric as he uh, helps lead us deeper into that call. And let's uh, pray for him even now to that end. Dear Lord, we we come before you today outside in in your glorious creation. Um, And Lord, this is is an answer to a prayer that has been 
uh, even years in the making, Lord, to renew and revitalize the, the ministry in our body here at Village, where we are, we are growing, we are equipping ourselves, we are digging into your word in ways we haven't been challenged to do before, and, and growing in our theology in ways that, that we didn't even know. Lord, we, we pray that this is a revitalization of our community at the small group level. Lord, that we would be doing life together uh, in depth, in, in pursuing each other, in, in growth, in maturity that you call us to, but also, Lord, that we can launch off of these small groups, Lord, to be serving in the community. Lord, this is not just about looking inward to grow and mature, Lord, but, but spreading your word, spreading the gospel outward. God, we just pray for Eric in his ministry here, that you'd be blessing him, that you would get off to a smooth start logistically, uh, in the office, getting things going, making connections, getting teams and, and schematics up and running, Lord. And we just pray for his family. God, obviously, Illinois is a little different than Texas, Lord. And so we just pray for smooth transitions in their neighborhoods, in their schools, and in the community that they'll be, they'll be joining in, Lord. We thank you for this blessing, God, of this family uh, joining us, joining our body here at Village. We pray this all in your great name. Amen. Amen. Would you welcome again uh, Eric and his family? Part of how we want to welcome them is that we've got brownies at the table after the service. Have I, have I mentioned after the service? We have brownies. Uh, so uh, refrain from storming the tables right now. Uh, but this is one of the ways after our service, we just want to hang out and, and uh, enjoy this uh, day together. And, and with that, as we're, I'm going to pray now as we look at God's word, but just a quick word to our families. We appreciate this is a kind of all hands on deck, everyone in one place at one time. Parents, if, if your little ones got to get some wiggles out, feel no shame standing up. If you need some room in the back or if you got to make a, a trip to the restroom, uh, feel no shame in doing that. Adults, if you need to get some wiggles out mid-service. Join the kids. And uh, this is one of the expressions as we gather as a family in worship. So let me pray, and then we'll turn our attention to God's Word. Father, we, we do. We thank you for this opportunity, this gift, to come before you together as a family uh, in your creation, outside, to glorify your name, to listen to your teaching, impress upon our hearts, Father, uh, just how great and good a Lord you truly are. So as we look at your word now, move our hearts to that end. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to take a big gulp uh, out of the Gospel of Luke, parts of two chapters today, uh, that are going to show us that Christ is Lord, and that he's a Lord worth coming under. He's a Lord worth submitting to. He's a Lord uh, over all things, and a Lord that as we come to Him in submission and adoration and praise, it is something worth and right and fitting uh, to do. And the portion that we look at today is, is going to start and begin and open by showing that Christ is Lord over sickness and sin. He's Lord over it. That He is the great physician, He is the great healer, He's the one that when the sick or the hurting come to Him at His touch, they are healed. He is the Lord that when sinners come to him, they are forgiven. He's Lord over both. So meet me, uh, uh, Luke uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 12. We'll be in Luke chapter 5. I appreciate you're outside. If you need to pull up a scripture on your phone, we're using the English Standard Version translation. So navigate there, uh, Luke chapter 5. 
starting in verse 12. We see in this portion, as this passage opens, in verse 5, or sorry, verse uh, 12 of chapter 5, it says, While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And as this leper comes to Jesus, we have to remind ourselves in this cultural time, a leper was a social outcast. That if you had leprosy, it was understood that you had an incurable disease, but not one that just took your health. It took everything. It took your name. It took your family. It took your community. Uh, you would have been relegated to the outskirts of the community, always having to declare unclean, that when people came and interacted with a leper, they would recoil. They, they'd steer clear. They wouldn't, you wouldn't touch someone with leprosy. And as this leper comes to Jesus and falls at him, and, and, and asks of him and declares, Lord, if you will, you can. He knows that Jesus, that our Lord, our Master, can make him clean. In verse 13, Jesus says, he responds, after stretching out his hand and touching him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. And Jesus reaches out and touches the untouchable. He touches the one that no one would have touched this was a, a, a moment that people would have cringed of this disease that literally decayed who you were. And Jesus touches him, and he is instantly healed. And we see this great reversal that it was uh, widely understood and widely known. If you touched someone or something that was unclean, that which was unclean made that which was clean unclean. Jesus reverses that. He who is clean touches the unclean, the untouchable, and makes this man with leprosy clean, healed, and restored. He's Lord over sickness, and he's Lord over sickness and sin. Look at, at this next uh, portion of Scripture, verses 18 to 20. The scene changes, and now we're introduced to a paralytic whose friends bring him to Jesus. Look at verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Jump to verse 24. Jesus responds to the Pharisees who know that he's flustered their feathers a little bit by forgiving this man. And Jesus says in verse 24, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had, had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. This man is brought by his friends. They come through the roof, I don't know how the facilities team felt about that, but there they are, coming through the roof, and roofs in this time would have been wood beams, probably thatching some mud, perhaps some tiles, depending on the region where you were in, they come through the roof, drop this man down on his bed, and Jesus does both. He does both. He forgives him of his sin, and he heals him of his paralysis. He heals him of his sickness of his physical brokenness. Now, this would have been pretty revolutionary 
in this context, um, it would have been uh, assumed that sickness and sin were connected, and connected in a specific way. And it perhaps would have been assumed by many in Jesus' time that if someone had a specific sickness, surely it must have been due to some kind of specific sin. Now, Jesus refutes that thought in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. This idea, Jesus refutes it, this idea that says specific sin must always, has to always, can only always result in specific sickness. This is where Job's friends got in trouble as well. Job, who went through all incredible amounts of suffering over the book of Job, his friends essentially start to conclude, Job, I'm sure you must have done, you must have done something. Something that you did caused all this suffering in your life. Jesus refutes that elsewhere in Scripture because sometimes uh, we experience sickness and brokenness in this life just because we live in a broken world. Just because we live after Genesis chapter 3. Our bodies break down. We need glasses. We need to go to the doctor. Physically, we break down because we live in a broken world. So in a general sense, uh, are, are, are sickness and sin connected in a general way? But it's wrong to say that it must be, has to be, can only be because of specific sin that specific sickness can come about. At the same time, we soberingly see that those two can be connected. They can be connected, but here's the danger. Here's the danger. When we try to parse that out, when we try to look at our own lives, and I know I'm speaking to many who have been or are currently navigating through difficult sickness or challenges or difficulty, physically speaking, when we try to parse that out, it's very dangerous because we don't know the mind of God. We don't have his perspective. We, we can't look at ourselves or someone else at someone suffering and dig down and find out, oh, I see, it was something specific that you have done. We can't do that. Only Jesus, only God himself can parse out to what degree in a general sense or in a specific sense our sin and sickness are connected. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Don't miss this. Even if they are, or to whatever degree they are, Jesus can restore both. He can heal both. He can forgive both. That when we come to him broken, whether spiritually, whether physically, and to whatever degree those two things overlap, when we come to our Lord, we come to a Lord who is over sickness and sin, and he restores both. And in the presence of the Pharisees, he says to this man who's come through the roof, you're forgiven, flusters the Pharisees, makes them upset. And they say in verse uh, 21, uh, you can uh, check it out uh, there, the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this? Who is this that's, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see the irony in that question? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus would agree. You're right. God and God alone is the one who can forgive sins. And not just Lord over us spiritually, but physically also. And not only that, he forgives this man's sins, and then he heals him. He heals his sickness, and he stands and rises and picks up his mat and walks home. He's Lord over sickness and sin. Then we see, secondly, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is also Lord of sinners. 
Lord, of people like you and me, broken, frail, with shortcomings, those who have sin. He's Lord of sinners. Look at this next portion as we march through this big chunk of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 27 and 28, Luke chapter 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. Now, uh, tax collector. Most of our experiences with having taxes collected of us is not a pleasant one, is it? When we think of a tax collector or tax collection, uh, to us, that might be, you know, annoying at least, maybe angering at most. It could be some heated conversations, maybe around the dinner table about the topic of taxes. Have you ever looked at your pay stub before taxes are taken out? Don't do it. It's quite discouraging, actually. And here we have Jesus walking up to Levi, a tax collector. Now, we have to appreciate, we have to appreciate that this topic of taxes and tax collection and then people or agencies uh, who, who collect our taxes to us, sure, it, 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 it's annoying at least, and maybe even angering at most. In Jesus' time, when you met a tax collector, it would have been infuriating. It would have put you way past the ten. Why? Because you have to remember that, that the people of Israel at this time were an oppressed people by an occupied uh, country, that, that the Romans had their thumb on the people of Israel. And appreciate the context. A tax collector, get this, a tax collector or tax collectors were notorious for getting rich, kind of stuff in their own pockets by collecting a little bit of extra that they wrongly and unjustly charged, exorbitant prices, and, and through extortion, essentially, scooped a little bit off the top, put it in their own pockets, and got rich. But appreciate how they're doing that. They're, they're collecting that extra for themselves off the backs of their fellow people, their fellow Jewish people, while working in complicity with their Roman oppressors. Appreciate everybody hated tax collectors in this time. That in a way, I tried to think of what's, what's, how can we describe this in an analogy that I think would capture the same kind of gut-churning experience that someone would experience in Jesus' time. It would be something analogous to if, 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 if there was a Jewish person in Nazi Germany who was collecting taxes off fellow Jewish people, extra and exorbitant prices, wrongly so, stuffing their own pockets and getting rich while collecting taxes for Nazi Germany. That's a little bit of the flavor, a little bit of the gut-wrenching twist that when you encountered a tax collector, notice, this is not just Jesus calling someone from the enemy camp to follow him. This is Jesus calling a traitor from your camp who's working for the enemy camp who's not really in the enemy camp, and he's not really in your camp. He's hated by your camp. He's a puppet of the enemy camp. He fits nowhere and despised by everyone. I don't know how tax collectors did it, but essentially every line that was drawn in the sand of the social structures of that time, tax collectors were on the wrong side of it, hated by everybody. 
And this is who Jesus is calling. This is who Jesus comes to and says, follow me. Come to me. Come after me. Follow me. Imitate me. Uh, come. And this, of course, ruffled the feathers of ruffled the feathers of everybody. Everybody. And look, look, look at what it says. As we see in verse 30 and 32, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you hanging out with this guy? Why are you even associating with him? Why are we finding, you know, group selfies, Jesus in the background, Levi and his friends at their home eating some food? Why are we stumbling onto pictures like this? Why are you even associating with this tax collector? They're, they're upset, they're mad, they're, they're grumbling. Jesus answers them. Those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if this is the person that Jesus calls, who is on the wrong side of every line drawn in the social sands of his time, we have to ask the question, are there any lines drawn in the social sands of our time? That as we reflect on the world that we live in, anyone in your life, don't answer this out loud, don't raise your hands, but anyone in your life that you would see as on the wrong side of the line, on the wrong side of the lines drawn into the social sands of our life, maybe they have a different set of ideology than you do. Uh, maybe they're going to vote differently than you are. Maybe they're coming from a family background or cultural background that's completely different than yours. Anything in your life or any circles that you can think of that, man, if Jesus called and was associating with one of them, I might not say it out loud, but on the inside, my heart would be churning, my stomach would be churning. Jesus is calling them to follow him. And there's something revolutionary about this. We need to hear, I think, two things at the same time. At the same time, that the, um, the inner moralist that we all have, the inner Pharisee inside of us all, that we all have to a certain degree, we need to see, we need to look at our Savior and our Lord, at the calling of Levi, and we need to see and realize that Jesus does not exclude those who are hated. Tax collectors were on the wrong side of everybody's line, and Jesus calls them. He doesn't exclude those who are hated, but he calls even Levi. Even Levi. The person that you would not want to associate, the person that you wouldn't want your family to associate, the person that you would cringe just to be next to them or near them. Jesus looks at them and says, follow me. See that he calls Levi. Our inner moralist needs to see that. Our inner Pharisee needs to see that. And at the same time, in the same breath, our inner relativist also needs to see, sure, absolutely, that God does not exclude the hated from his call. And at the same time, God does not endorse sin. The call of Jesus Christ is not the call for him to come and endorse all of our values, all of our dreams, all the things that we bring to him. The call of Jesus is, is to give us a new set of values, to give us a new mission, a new calling, a, a new identity, that when we follow him, we lay all of those down at his feet to be, to be transformed, to be made new, to be renovated, that we might come from death to life. That's why Jesus says, 
Those who are well, I have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See what he's doing? This, fits, this does not fit our mindset, our categories of today. That, that if someone would see themselves as a very, 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 very religious person, they're going to get flustered just like the Pharisees are. Why is Jesus eating and, and dining and calling with, with this tax collector? What's he doing? Our inner Pharisee gets upset at this point. If someone might consider themselves very irreligious, they've been discipled on a steady diet of, of, of what's pumped through on media, they would hear Jesus' words, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And at that word, sin and repentance, that's going to churn their stomach. Do you see what, how transformative the call of Jesus truly is on all of our lives? See his protective love for all people. And see that it's a kind of love that doesn't endorse all that we bring to Jesus, transforms it, renews it. That we come to lay down all of our life, to pick up the life that he has for us. We come with all of our hopes and dreams and values to get a new set of hopes and dreams and values. That we come to follow him. He is Lord. And he is Lord over sinners. That when we pick on uh, sinners, Jesus says, whoa, hey, wait a second. This is my sinner. And I love them. I came to die for them. And um, when Jesus defends the sinner in his arms, the sinner in his arms can't peek out from the corner and say, nana, nana, boo-boo, stick their, stick their tongue out. <laughs> Jesus says, no, we got some repentance to work here. We got some renewal. We have some sanctification. This is how pervasive, this is how transformative the call of Jesus truly is on all of our lives. He's Lord. He's Lord over sickness and sin. He's Lord of sinners. And next we see that he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the day of rest. He's Lord of the law. He's Lord of all the instructions that God has given us. In this case, specifically, the Sabbath. Check this out. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, uh, rubbing them uh, together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why? Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jump ahead. Uh, verse 6. On another Sabbath, so another day, another Sabbath, separate situation, uh, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Jesus knows this. He picks up where their mind and heart are and Jesus says in verse 9 to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said was, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And Jesus, his disciples are eating on the Sabbath. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And once again, the Pharisees are all, all kind of caught up in a tizzy. Because we have to appreciate the mindset that they're coming from. There is a very strongly ingrained idea that obedience is going to bring blessing. Disobedience is going to bring curses. One commentator noted that because of this, the Pharisees were in a way almost at a level of uh, uh, panic or frenzy. Because remember, they're an oppressed people. They're Roman oppressors. has their thumb on the people of Israel. 
And the Pharisees are thinking, man, if we keep breaking the law like this, how are we ever going to hope to get out from under this oppression? How are we ever going to see this curse lift off the, our backs? So we better obey the law. We better, we better get in line. And, and breaking the Sabbath, Jesus, like your disciples are doing, like you are doing, you're healing on the Sabbath. This is what's causing the problem. Stop. Stop doing that. Because again, that idea, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings curses. Now watch how sneaky this is. This is a sneaky one. Watch how this works. The Pharisee, or the moralist, takes that and looks at that and says, man, if there's any way that we're going to sustain ourselves, if there's any way to get this curse off our shoulders, catch this, this is why it's so sneaky, they say, I'm going to look to the law or my performance of the law, and the more I obey, that itself is the hope that the curse is going to be lifted. That is the hope that I'm going to be sustained and carried through. But do you see what they're not looking at? They're not looking at the Lord of the law. They're looking at the law itself. And more specifically, their performance of it. Their hope is not in their Lord. Their hope is in their religious zeal. Notice how sneaky that is. Because we would say it's important to follow what God has taught us, is it not? But do you see the difference? We're looking to Him. We're not looking to our performance. We're looking to the Lord of the law. We're not looking at the law. We're not looking at our religious energy and religious zeal and saying, look, that is my hope to sustain myself or lift this curse. We're looking to our Lord. The inner moralist, the, the Pharisee, is going to say, look at your religious performance. That is your hope. The relativist, the irreligious, they're going to say, don't look at the law, look outside the law. That is our hope. And both the heart of the Pharisee and the heart of the relativist at the same time have the same baseline assumption. Surely God cannot deliver or will not deliver. Surely God cannot sustain or will not sustain. So therefore, I have to look at my religious energy or I have to look outside God because God's not going to do it. You see, the same heart that does not believe that God will sustain or God can bear the curse, if you will, so we have to look somewhere for another God. The Gospel says something completely different. It doesn't say look at the law for your hope. It doesn't say look outside the law for your hope. It says look at God, who is your hope. Serve Him. Obey Him. Look to Him. Follow Him. Because He is the one who sustains. He is the one who bears the curse, who delivers, who redeems. He Himself is the Lord that we look to. And in verse 5, uh, we see in chapter 6 that Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what that means, a part of it, at least what that means, is as we think about Sabbath, as we think about rest, it is not a yoke of burden to bear as we serve it. It's a gift from God as we serve Him. We are not made to bow to the Sabbath. We are not made to, to, to bow to religious performance. We're made to bow to our King and our Lord. And from that grace, from that salvation, from that favor of God, now Sabbath becomes just a gift. Not a yoke and burden to bear, but a gift to utilize. He gives that rest. He gives Sabbath to us that we can rest in it from His grace, or even if on the Sabbath we can do good work from a place of rest. He's Lord of the Sabbath. 
And he shows us this, he says this, that he is God who sustains and blesses. He is a God who is so committed to provide all of our needs. He is a God that is, is so committed to bearing the curse that he would be crucified on a tree, bearing the curse for us that we might be redeemed, saved, restored. And it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who does this. Do you see just how fitting it is to see him as Lord? He's Lord of sickness and sin. He's Lord of sinners. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Christ is Lord. And he's a Lord worth following. And if he is Lord, if he's Lord of everything, and if he's a Lord like this, let him be Lord of you. Let him. I want to ask you a question. In many ways, that's the same question we have to ask, in a, in a way, to enter into salvation. Lord, I have, to, I have to submit myself to all of your provision. Salvation is of the Lord. We need him to save us. And that's a question that we never outgrow, even as Christians. Are there pockets of your life? Are there pockets of my life? Are there pockets of our hearts that we're still slow or still hesitant or reticent to release over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's your resources. Perhaps it's your career. Perhaps it's your family. Perhaps it's your stuff. Perhaps it's your kids. Maybe it's your hopes. Maybe it's your dreams or your goals. That if you're honest with yourself, there's a little part of your heart that says, Lord, you, you can have control, you can have ownership, you can call the shots on every part of my life, except for this one. <laughs> except for this little corner of my life. Please, I, I, I want to maintain control over that. If Christ is a Lord like this, let him, let him be Lord, even over the parts of your life that you so desperately want to cling on to and control and hold on to and protect and care for. Why don't we allow him to have lordship over all parts of our lives? It's a question I have to ask myself. We never outgrow this question. And we have to ask it over and over and over again. And some things that I release to the Lord and lordship, I, I take it back. And then I have to release it again. And then I want to take it back. Is it a question that you care about the deepest things in your heart? God cares even more. That infinitely so, he cares so much so he would give of himself. This is our Lord. And this is a Lord over all. And a Lord worth coming under. So let him, let him, whatever that part of your heart or your life is that you are holding on to tightly, won't you release it to him? And as you do, know that you are releasing it into the hands of a God and a Lord who is strong and the Lord who is kind. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we think about your Lordship over us, Lord, would it uh, humble us in a healthy way? See the areas, Lord, that we try to take back control over what we never had control of in the first place. Show us, Lord, the ways that we try to look at you as if we were eye to eye and, and, and shoulder to shoulder. Show us that you are infinitely more, so much more powerful, so much more worthy. And Father, from that place of, of humility, would you tenderly, as you do well, take over the parts of our life 
that as we try to control them, we are a basket case of anxiety or fear or concern, that as we release it to you, would you replace it with peace and comfort and rest. Enlarge our trust, enlarge our faith, that as we hand over our lives to you, our Lord, our Master, Lord, and in replace of that, would you give us a mission, give us a calling, Send us to serve you, that as we declare your lordship over all things, as we testify and witness to your lordship over us, that we would see, that the world would see, that you are a lord worth coming under. May it be true of us. And Lord, may you have all the glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.